Hey everyone, welcome back to SEL Convergence. We're back again, and Tom is ready to welcome another guest to the show. We have with us another local teacher, but we're talking about something that we haven't had a chance to really discuss yet on the podcast. So I'm really excited about it. Uh, Tom, why don't you introduce our guest? Mike, thanks so much. I appreciate everything you do to make these podcasts uh, available to our educator friends. Gina Flores, I'm so happy you're with us, Gina. Gina is an educator in Avangrove School District. Gina, introduce yourself to our listeners and, and tell them a little bit about what you do kind of day in and day out. All right, well, I am so glad to be here as well. Um, so I teach in the Avangrove School District in the social studies department. I primarily have taught ninth grade social studies. I have taught 10th grade a few different years, and I tend to teach uh, what we call the academic level. Um, and so those students tend to have um, academic and behavioral challenges that have led me, uh, quite honestly, down a rabbit hole. <laughs> um, and so I began looking first into um, behavioral interventions, and that's led me down the route of exploring trauma and ultimately um, the convergence of uh, background and trauma. And so I think today we're going to get the opportunity to talk about what I talk about is immigration related trauma, um, influence trauma, and the convergence of ethnicity and trauma. Mm -hmm. And Gina, do I remember from one of our previous conversations, you are heading into your doctoral studies? Yeah. So I just completed my uh, first semester. So it's still wow. a pretty good experience. Um, it has been a great experience. So I actually began at Wilmington University in the fall. I took a few classes in their certificate program in trauma and resilience. And I thought, this stuff is gold. I need yes, to it is. further. Um, so I began officially my first semester at Liberty University. So I am nine out of 57 credits complete, which I'm very excited about. Congratulations. That's wonderful. I, I, I can't wait to hear more about that as we progress our relationship together. But tonight, I want to tap into your passion and your expertise for the young adults that you work with and, and, and possibly even others that you draw into your life experience. This intersection, this connection between ethnicity, uh, where folks literally are coming from, as well as figuratively are coming from, and, and any economic factors that are impacting our young adults. Yeah, so the community that I work in is um, has a really strong historical and economic base in migrant farm working, and particularly the mushroom farming industry. And so quite literally, our community is strongly built on and to this day dependent on uh, people coming primarily from Latin American countries to um, to live in the community. And of course, the families are then schooled within the community. So um, not to go too far in depth, but that has changed um, culturally throughout time. At first, when um, the mushroom farms began to be very popular in Chester County, we had a lot of people coming from Puerto Rico um, post-World War II. You can tell I'm a U.S. history teacher, right? Post-World War II, uh, around the time of the Bracero program, we had a lot of Mexican migrants that were coming in, and that continued um, roughly up through this most recent recession. 
more recently now, we are seeing more people coming in from Guatemala, Honduras. And now, um, this is this is even more recent since the last time I spoke with Tom, but we have a lot of people coming from Venezuela um, due to the economic collapse. And so, uh, quite literally, what is going on in the world in terms of um, what is driving push-pull factors in migration are bringing people into the Avon Crow School District. And when they arrive, they often arrive with a set of experiences that, um, quite frankly, have been traumatic. And so um, when we're talking about some of our um, Puerto Rican neighbors that have potentially been there for a period of years, we can get into how trauma is passed down intergenerationally. And then that combines with our our most recent um, newcomer families who are coming from Guatemala, Honduras, and Venezuela. Um, Some of those experiences might look very similar. Some might look quite different depending on what their home life experience was like with their um, actual journey to come to our, our district was like. Um, but but there are some common factors that tie that all together um, that can make some things that you discuss in a social studies classroom, classroom quite triggering. And so um, one of the things that I've been <laughs> adventuring into is, is trying to find out how we can teach in an experience-based way that um, allows us to deal with these triggers a little bit differently. And so um, the students will be able to engage in the learning as opposed to being shut off. Mm. So as you were speaking, Gina, uh, my way of processing conversations is I make mind maps. So I'm making my mind map as, as you're speaking and go back historically for us, help our listeners understand and help me understand uh, the Bracero program. So Bracero program was a program that was created in World War II um, that allowed uh, migrants to come in per- primarily from Latin America. Bracero literally means arms. Um, like, uh if you were to translate it. Um, So while our men were away fighting in war, we needed people to come in primarily in food production. And so we allowed a lot of families to come in during that time to help with all of these life-sustaining processes that we needed help with in our country. Um, And and that really is when mushroom farming took hold in Chester Mm. County. So I imagine that we're talking about many of the farms in the Southwest, California, and then mushroom mushroom farming here? Yeah, so it happened. Certainly it was a a national program, um, but talking about Chester County, it happened to be the convergence really of of being Chester County horse farming. We used to use horse manure to create um, Mm -hmm. and to fertilize the mushroom farms. Mm -hmm. And so that really converged with, at first we had this, this is going to get really deep in the weeds here. Um, But as Philadelphia stopped industrial, like went through a deindustrialization. That's when the Puerto Ricans started coming out from the city to work in the mushroom farm. So there were those initial laborers combined with us having the resources of the horse manure in Chester County. Well, when a lot of our men left um, to go fight in the war, we then needed other um, immigrants to come in to help us to produce the food. And so at that time, of course, we had uh, Mexican laborers come in or, or people from other countries. And then we had the rise of the suburbs right after the end of the war. And so that really fueled the growth of West Grove and these kinds of towns. And so they became more of a boom and we needed increased food production as the economy was growing, the consumer rates were growing and overall it took off from there. So I, I, I'm, I'm processing. Tell me if I'm on the right track. 
Historically, with the Bracero program, World War II, Bracero meaning arms, America, United States of America, invites, invites folks from Latin American countries to come in so that we can eat, so that we can be economically viable, so that we can be comfortable. You are spot on. <laughs> okay. That, so I think that's really, really essential history and really foundational understanding for our listeners to focus on here for a minute. Uh, in this time period, I just traveled back and forth uh, between where we all live here in Chester County and very, very, very Southern Florida and went through the whole stretch of Southern states. And, uh, and even here in our, even here in our, our area, uh, some folks aren't thrilled with uh, immigration. And yet it all began so that we could stay afloat. Is that correct? Yeah, so they definitely filled a need and they continue to fill a need um, within our economy. That it, that definitely has not ended. Um, I have read various statistics over the years and um, I'm sure the numbers are consistently changing, but a very high percentage of American food production is still based on immigrant labor. So um, even though that was foundationally created, it is not yet over. It is not yet um, something that we quite honestly can survive without right now. Mm -hmm. If we were to take mm -hmm. away all of the immigrants who have come into our country, um, our systems would, would pretty quickly break down at this point. One of the things you mentioned, and I have it written on my mind map, and I, I do want to dig very deeply tonight into generational trauma. But before we do that, you use the word journey. And, and, and I know you, you were focusing on the literal physical journey and also the social emotional journey. Can you help, again, our listeners understand uh, the, the details of those, those journeys and the impact of those journeys, particularly on our children? Yeah, so um, some of the, you know, some of the children are coming with their families. Some of the recent um, changes that we have seen is, is the rise in unaccompanied minors. So there are also many, many children that perhaps are fleeing violence in their home countries that are, um, some of them leaving from Guatemala and Honduras try to come up through Mexico. So they have to cross not only the border into the United States, but they need to cross through Mexico as well. Um, many of them, if they're able to obtain paperwork, uh, that makes it a little bit easier, but it's still financially a hardship. Some of them, and oftentimes are not able to obtain paperwork. Um, and so they are avoiding law enforcement along the way, which means oftentimes they are seeking food, they're seeking shelter, um, they go without many of their basic human needs. Um, they oftentimes are coming with a second or third grade education level, and they're oftentimes coming with the intention of working. Um, I've had experiences where we had a student a few years ago who asked if he could have Fridays off from school because his parents had paid uh, a large sum of money to Coyote to get him here. And if he did not pay them back by working in the United States, that something 
not very good was going to happen to that family. And so imagine a student like that who is told that they need to attend school and they need to learn and they don't understand why learning about America is going to save their family at home. So really explicitly, uh, so all of our listeners understand Coyote. Yeah, so that is somebody who is paid a sum of money to um, bring an individual across the border. Um, Oftentimes, this can look uh, like they are hiding them away. Sometimes they'll hide them in trucks. Sometimes they will hide them. We've seen the people hidden in like oil tankers. Um, Sometimes they will have them walk across the the Rio Grande and then through the desert. It it often is quite physically strenuous. And then, of course, uh, whenever your body is going through sustained uh, physical um, strenuous activities, that takes a very big social emotional toll on you. You are locked into survival mode. You, you you mentioned survival mode as I was thinking about survival. Here we have young people, and I don't even know the mileage that they've traveled, you know, from Guatemala and Honduras uh, through up through Mexico and into the Southwest and then beyond. Uh, but the I imagine in many cases, these are life and death situations. Yeah, they are. Um, and it's it's sometimes it's walking. Sometimes I've heard of um, cases of them catching a, a train, but the train is not very safe. They'll sometimes hang on to the outside of the train. Um, they will be tucked into like compartments and trucks. I mean, it's 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 quite um, dangerous. It's quite strenuous. And it's also it's all, you know, in order to achieve a better life. So if that's what they're coming here for, imagine what it was like where they were. And that's something I maybe you can help our listeners understand, um, because I, I there are people in this world that I love that feel very differently than I feel, that feel that that many of our immigrants coming in today are coming to take someone's job, and I uh, I don't believe that, and, and as you said, we really can't survive without them. So so help us understand. Help us understand the dynamics of what's going on today uh, between folks that I imagine um, think very differently than the three of us may be thinking and feeling. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different um, theories on this. We have had what you're describing are feelings of nativism, and we have had feelings of nativism in the United States pretty much since the founding, the next group to come in is always seen as a threat to the lifestyle that America has. Um, You know, they usually will bring different ideas and they're doing different kinds of jobs. And there really is no limit on economic success and growth. And so a lot of people will say, for example, where they're not paying taxes. Well, most of these individuals that are coming, they automatically will have taxes pulled out of their their paychecks or their ways that they get paid. And then uh, they'll oftentimes you'll file with an ITIN number um, because those taxes were pulled out of the paycheck. So they are looking, the federal government is looking for them to be accounted for. And even in the off circumstance that those taxes would not be filed, most of those individuals are working a job that is um, below the level where they would be getting reimbursed 
for taxes anyway. So right. more likely than not, the amount that's taken out of their taxes more than accounts for the amount that they are owing to the federal government. In fact, many of them would probably be receiving a refund if they were to file. Um, so they just simply represent uh, a different division of the workforce that our country throughout time has always grown to rely on. And as these individuals become a part of our society and add new ideas and add to our growth, they oftentimes, um, you know, expand our industries in new directions or um, become an educated part of the workforce and their children, you know, become a part of our society. And then the next group will come in and they'll bring new ideas. And that's how America always evolves. So um, I like to view what immigrants are bringing as a strength because, um, you know, people, a lot of, uh, of conservatives or, or people who view immigration differently are, are also citing we need to keep up with um, what other countries are doing? Well, that's how we're keeping up with what other countries are doing. We're bringing in fresh and new ideas all the time. Beautiful. So let's let's now dig deeply with your sharing the various types of trauma that are presenting uh, with your students, with everyone's students who are coming in through this immigration journey. And, and also, if you want to start to move into the generational trauma, please do that as well. Yeah, so something that is particularly that has particularly stood out to me since my time in Avon Grove is a disclosure of like information, for example, is, is very, very triggering. Um, for example, um, when a Hispanic parent might be asked to provide medical information on their child, if they are somebody who has been trained that survival means evading detection then I don't want to disclose information on my child, or I might not want to come to parent-teacher conferences, mm -hmm. or I might not want to, um, you know, participate in giving any kind of information away that might put me in the, the view of the public eye. And so their children see that. And so when we talk about social emotional learning, one of the most important components is uh, how we interact with each other. And, and that involves sharing of ourselves. And so that can be quite challenging for um families that have been through an immigration experience. They're taught quite literally that survival means not sharing. Mm. And, and it's important because as educators, we know that connecting with the material makes it real for you. Right. It makes it relevant. It makes it important. So um, of course, many students who have, have been taught that survival means not sharing are, are going to have a hard time relating to the content. Well, why does this matter to me? Why do I need to learn this? How does this help me? This doesn't put money in my pocket. Um, and so making that connection has been really, really important for me. Um, and so I actually began, so the pandemic has, has added a whole other level to this, um, add in isolation, and all of our students have had a difficult time connecting this year. And it's actually is, has horrible and difficult as it, as it has been, it has leveled the playing field a little bit. Mm. And so it has been an excellent opportunity for us to share some understanding mm -hmm. in the fact that um, survival can, can look quite differently and finding out how to bridge the gap between connection while not endangering our survival um, has been eye-opening this year. I've uh, began to um, teach social, like many social emotional lessons through all of my historical lessons. Hmm. And so like one of the, the most successful ones that I did this year was that when I taught the Berlin Wall, I taught isolation. And we had a really good conversation about, you know, what does it feel like to be isolated? And 
you know, when have you felt isolated in your life? And, um, and, and see if I tell them like, oh, we're just, we're talking about history, right? So it's not as threatening necessarily for them to feel as if they're sharing themselves. Well, they could say, well, you know, if I lived across the other side of a wall from my family, I might miss my grandma. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you know, how might you keep in touch with your grandma? And they say, well, I might call her on zoom. And I'll say, well, you know, back in the 1960s, they didn't have Zoom. What would you do? And so it becomes this like role play. Yeah. And so it kind of, it, it creates the connection. We're learning the content in, in history. We're imagining what it was like to be in their shoes. It's actually creating empathy with our historical figures and what it was like to be there in that time period. But it's also emotionally connecting the students with the content, um, with themselves and with each other. Can you share with our listeners a few other ways that you have successfully made connection? Uh, So, yeah. So I always try to bridge connection. Um, I think you have to connect first with yourself, then with others, and then with the content. If that can happen all in one, that's a beautiful thing. (laughs) It it doesn't always happen that way. Um, So if you have to connect with yourself, a lot of reflection activities are really, really good for that. And um, I found in in part of my research that oftentimes the verbal (laughs) component or the narrative component is not unlocked when we're having a traumatic experience. And so I found that drawing will oftentimes help if they can draw it out. That activates the right side of the brain and and it can um, activate parts of the brain that if we can move it far enough up in the brain will actually activate the language part of the brain and the left side of the brain. So basically your lower order thinking skills are start in the back and it moves on up and the, the farther forward you go in the brain, the more higher order thinking skills you get. And so you almost have to to balance the the feeling of the right side of the brain with the logic of the left side of the brain in order to move forward. And so the more you can add in feeling, then you can counterbalance that with logic and then add a little more feeling and then counterbalance that with logic. And so drawing is really good for that. Um, These role-playing scenarios are really, really good for that. Um, Any kind of relationship building is like team building activities is really, really good for that. And again, like that can oftentimes be these kind of role playing scenarios where I'll put them together and say, you have to figure out a solution to this historical scenario, for example. And then that's kind of tying in that content piece as well, which is why I really, really like to do that. I love that you said uh, the learning process starts with self first, then the relationship and then the content. I, I absolutely love that. So the the kind of the go-to research in social emotional learning is Castle Collaborative for Academic Social Emotional Learning, and they would be in complete agreement with you that the first step is self-awareness. I can't get to the other, uh, if you will, more involved or sophisticated social emotional skills until I first look at myself, and that involves a lot of self-reflection. So I, I'm I'm thrilled that you mentioned that. Let's go to the team building piece, the relationship building, the connection, uh, the social awareness. Uh, how, what kinds of things are you doing or have you done that you feel really excited about? Uh, so, yeah, that's an interesting question because I think this year has looked a lot different virtually, right? So normally um, we would have all kinds of get to know yous. All, I usually start my year, I love it, with like a web which sounds so elementary and they make fun of me and they get me trapped in this web every single time. And I'm like, look, 
if one of you pulls on the strings, it impacts the other person. And so they like, it starts with like a silly question. Like, do you prefer chocolate or vanilla ice cream? And they'll answer the question, like very little self-exposure, but sharing something. And then they'll toss it to somebody else who agrees. And before you know it, there's a web across the whole classroom and we're all standing together and I'm trying to funnel myself through the web and they're laughing at me and we're sharing common laughter, which sharing good feelings, by the way, releases that oxytocin is a form of connection. Um, and so we, we have a conversation of like, look, we're all tied together, right? We're all connected with each other through all of these little, simple, silly ways, but that's part of the human experience. And the human experience is what we're going to look at. Whether you were alive in 1920 or whether you are alive today, there's some components and elements of being human. Mm. And, you know, just part of being in the classroom, um, if you need something, we're all connected, right? If you pull on the string, you pull everybody down. If you lift the strings up, you lift everybody up. Just showing a physical representation that we are all connected. Um, online, we have tried to do a lot of different um, video shares just so they can, like, there's something about seeing another person's face, which yeah. um, has been has been challenging this year because we also do want to respect students' home environments and um you know, people being sensitive to that. So a lot of students will go outside and we would say, that's great. That's fine. You have a lovely background. I love the tree behind you. Like yep. I love the nature environment. Like they didn't have to be in their home. They could be anywhere. Some students were at the library. Some students were at the garage. We have an after school program that yep. uh, a lot of those students would go to as well. Um, so the environment became very, very flexible. Um, trying to build, you know, hopefully now coming back into in person, we'll be able to do those kinds of things. And then again, like I really rely on a lot of my um, practices rely on simulation. And so that goes with content. And it also goes with social emotional learning, because you learn how to connect and deal with each other. So like when we do, uh, for example, imperialism, we're talking about like, well, you have three factories and I have two products. And like, how does that come together? And like, oh, well, what about the people who live there? They only have one dice. And if they have one dice, that means they have a small army versus the United States, they have five dice. So if you keep rolling your one dice, you have a one in six chance of beating the United States army, which is a really, really small chance. And they're gonna come and take all your products and they're gonna put them in their factories. And so in, in negotiating that, it's not only a learning of like, what has happened through time. It's learning the logic and it's learning like how we communicate with each other. It's learning power dynamics. Um, it's learning like, and then we'll process through like, oh, you were treated unfairly. What did that feel like? And so it's kind of the before piece. Like you have the before reflection and you have the after reflection. And sometimes we'll have the chance to switch up roles. So what does it feel like to be in this person's shoes versus that person's shoes? It's a lot of the stuff that teachers are already doing. It's the processing out. Yes. Yes. I agree completely. One of the things you mentioned a really key word when you were going through the web activity and, and you really made yourself vulnerable. You know, it, you were willing to engage in the silliness. You were willing to engage in the laughter. You were willing to be very human. And, and I, I, I think that is absolutely essential. For, for all of this social emotional learning work to be successful. Uh, do you wanna comment at all about that vulnerability uh, for our teachers? Um, yes, so I can, I can comment on the vulnerability component. So a lot of what makes it safe for the students to be vulnerable with each other and, and even really with themselves 
is to see you doing it first. You are the biggest example and model of it. Um, I've also done a lot of research into like when students, for example, will um, be, for example, performing a bad behavior and laugh. It's almost because their brain is releasing those feel good chemicals to ease the discomfort. No, students don't actually feel good when they're rule breaking. They are trying to compensate. And so when you stand up as a good example and you show them it feels good to to be vulnerable and to offer this up uh, to the group and to the class and you feel connection, again, that releases those good oxytocin uh, chemicals in the brain and students feel um, they feel good, they feel connected, and they learn the difference. It's amazing how many students will come up to you and say, like, wow, it felt so much better. Like, wow, I did a great job. And that feels so different compared to what the response that I normally get. And, and they almost need to see you do it and to see others. Like you oftentimes get like the first followers, right? Like mm -hmm. the students in the group who are willing to take that risk and, um, do so shamelessly. Even if people say, oh, you're, you're a nerd or you, oh, you're the teacher's pet or you're this or you're that. There's something that's so organic about the feeling that you get associated with that, that keeps them coming back. And once mm -hmm. others kind of one by one engage in it, they don't want to go back. Yeah. Take some courage to be the first follower. It, it does. It's almost harder to be the first. We we have a lot of um, professional development around that at our school. So that's um, that's something that I've learned a lot from. It's almost harder to be a first follower than it is to be the initiator, because if you are the initiator, you've done the research, you stand behind this theory. And I'm the teacher. I'm the one that's educated yeah, in this. Yeah, if you yeah. don't know it. They have to exhibit a lot of trust in me in order yeah. to believe that I know what I'm doing and what I'm talking about. Um, and so I need to show them trust. But it does take a lot of confidence on their part. I want to go back to something you mentioned very briefly. I want to make sure our listeners understand this incredible resource that's in your community. And I don't know if it's in other communities or not. You mentioned the garage. Now, I, I've, been, I've been in and out of Avon Grove School District for easily 30 years, if not 40. And I've heard about the garage repeatedly. And all I've ever heard is what an incredible, wonderful resource it is. Can you give us a snapshot about the garage? Yeah, so that's actually how I got my job working in Avon Grove. Wow. I worked for the, so I worked, so Oxford, West Grove and Kennett Square all have a version of it through the 21st Century Program, which is a grant that is run through the intermediate unit. So I, um, when I first had graduated college, I got a job working for the Oxford version. They call it the STARS program there, but it's it's run by the same person, really. Um, and so um, after working that summer there, I got my job at Avon Grove. I transitioned to working at the after school program with them for three years, which was an amazing experience. Um, this is a program that essentially runs after school and summer programming for it, it's stated for at-risk youth, and it really does serve at-risk youth, but they certainly would never turn anybody down who wanted to be a part of it. And the idea is that if you have a program where you can go to get, they have mentoring, they have volunteering, they have, like, we eat family meals together. So um, especially in the summertime when we have that extended time, every student who comes, we will prepare a lunch together and we will eat together family style. Wonderful. And then they'll move on to doing the activities or a lot of STEM activities or they'll have like they have like doctors that will come in and guest speak or um, they'll have internship programs over the summer. 
Um, so many different opportunities for students to get their needs met all through really um, partnering with the community and positive mentors. Mm. Um, so they, and they partnered very well with the school. It was, it was so powerful when I would have a student in class, <laughs> I would oftentimes see them during like an intervention time throughout the day. And then I would see them at the after school program. So like several different times throughout the day, and I'd be like, did you get your math homework done? Did you turn it in? Uh, like just really, and, and they, they kind of love it. And it's kind of crazy when they're coming back and asking for it, like asking for the <laughs> repetition, yeah. Yeah. because a lot of them, not that they're, you know, I, I hate to say this, I don't know how to say it properly. Their parents love and care for them. However, if they're working two jobs or if they're working 10 or 12 hour days, they're not getting that attention at sure. home. Sure. And so this is a way of giving them positive support, positive reinforcement, as opposed to where they might otherwise look for that if it weren't through the garage. Very high level of relationship. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of trust. And so that is a lot of, you know, speaking of trust, that's a lot of what allowed me to build the trust to get some of these first followers, because a lot of the students would see that I'm not just here doing my job. I'm here because I really care about you. And if I didn't really care about you, I wouldn't be spending my whole day having you in my room for breakfast and seeing you for lunch and then seeing you after school and then cooking with you. Like we're having a meal together. Like there's something really powerful especially culturally within Hispanic culture about having a meal together. Yeah. Um, and so whenever you can do that in school, it's great. But like even more so, like we're standing here cooking rice together. <laughs> it's very powerful. You're part of their community. Yeah. And so really that disarms this threat that there is like the school community and then their separate community. Yeah. It bridges the two. Mike, I want to bring you in here for a moment. Uh, special educator in Wissahickon. Is there anything like the garage in, in, in your uh, your school district? Uh, yeah, so we've had a couple of different initiatives that, that uh, ring similar to that. One was an after-school program run by uh, a building staff member, actually, who lives in the community. And it was an after-school program where students could go, and it was essentially built as a homework club on the surface, uh, which is the the kind of the basic purpose of the program. But it also encompassed a lot of what you're talking about and the relationships and the sense of community. It also provided a connection with parents, which was essential because they would come to pick their children up, and that would create an opportunity for conversation and to get to know them a little bit better. Mm. We also have a program through the Boys and Girls Club that operates in a similar fashion, just on a much bigger level. Mm. And it's amazing to see how that rolls back into school. Since I'm not directly um, connected to either one of those programs, but I still see the that smaller community within our school, the kids who participate in those programs. It's It's really neat to see. I'm thrilled that both of your districts have that resource. I'd love to see that in every school system. Gina, let's let's now dig into trauma. And uh, the uh, I'd like you to share with our listeners some uh, some examples of what you're seeing with your students, and um, help them understand what some of the most appropriate or successful interventions can be? Okay, so um, right away, my mind goes back to, um, I had one student this year who came into school 
um, about halfway through the school year, he, you know, we all had started virtually and then we had brought in our special education students and then we went hybrid and then uh, more and more students came back and um, this student would not speak, would not speak to me, really would hardly speak to anybody. And so part of my um, my shifting, my pivoting that happened this year was really trying to encourage these, these dialogues because I felt that students were really, really um, hurting and wanting for conversation. And so um, this student, um, like I said, would, wouldn't engage not only in the, con in the um, context of what we were doing, but they also wouldn't engage with the other students. They would be eating lunch by themselves. And so um, there were a few days where he wasn't earning his discussion credit for class. And so I approached the student and I said, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> you know, this, this is not going to work. We cannot do this all year. And I said, okay, if I allow you to draw your responses, you know, can we, can we start there? And so for the first week, he would draw his, his responses to the different questions and the different things we'd be doing in class. He still really wasn't engaging with the others, but he was connecting with himself to kind of that mm -hmm. first level there. And so then the next week I said, you've been doing a great job. You're earning your credit. How about if I have you start forming those into sentences? How about I ha have you put them in our discussion board? We'll type them up and we'll put them in the discussion board. So then he would do that. He still wouldn't speak and still didn't want to verbally participate, but he would, um, you know, type everything into what we were talking about. And then that went on for, for maybe two or three weeks and he would do that. And then finally, I asked a question. I, I can't recall what exactly the question was on. I think at this point in the school year, we were talking about civil rights and we were talking about um, the rights of different groups. And I asked the question and he stood up and he said, that's not fair. Mm. And I said, okay, what's not fair? And so, you know, from there he went on, he didn't, he didn't talk a whole lot about his experiences, but as time went on, we got more and more wording. And it turns out that um, this student had a, had a background of being separated from his family. And so when the pandemic hit, it triggered this isolation mm -hmm. again, triggered this separation. And so it felt very, very, very threatening. And so when we're talking about, you know, things that are happening in history, again, that's almost like a double trigger. It's what's going on yep. in the world. Yep. And then it's what's going on here in school, quite literally right in front of you. And so through kind of helping him to, I believe you said to self-awareness, yes, um, to become aware of like what he really was feeling, like drawing it out. He really wasn't able to have words at first, but at first he was able to get his feelings down within the logic, the left side of the brain caught up. And so then he was ad able to add words and he was able to have self-awareness. Well, once he was able to put the emotion and the logic together, he was able to make sense of what was triggering. And he probably mm -hmm. wouldn't use those exact words to say, well, this is triggering mm -hmm. me. But, you know, a lot of times, especially in adolescents and teenagers, it, it comes across as an injustice or an unfairness mm -hmm. or why me or how, how is this happening to me? What's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. It's a lot of those kinds of feelings. And through being able to express that, a lot of his classmates affirmed him. Like, yeah, I felt what it's like to feel like this isn't fair. And so that created a common connection between the two of them. And then from there, they're able to connect to the content of what we're actually talking about, why we're talking about, you know, what wasn't fair. For example, I've had a lot of students that, um, unfortunately have been um, subjected to sexual abuse where uh, talking about um, women has been really, really hard or women's role in history. And 
And that's difficult too, because we try to incorporate all different groups of people. We try to incorporate, hey, this is how women changed history. Um, however, talking about some of the difficult things that have happened to women throughout time, that can be very, very triggering yes. for them. So it really depends on individual specific experiences. Isolation and separation, just due to the communities in terms of immigration, have been a really, really key component. Um, sexual assault is also a really, really popular unfortunately, a popular um, trigger um, for our students. But I mean, there could be, if we're talking about like, for example, maybe a student went hungry and we're talking about the Great Depression, that might be something mm. that's triggering. Uh, if a student didn't get to eat that morning, <laughs> you know, that might be something that just throughout the whole day, all they can think about is food. Where am I getting my next meal? So it really, I mean, the content can trigger it, but sometimes that student comes already triggered just by what's going on in life. So. Here I am, a social studies teacher at a high school level. Uh, I may have some immigrant children in my school, in my classroom, and I don't want to trigger anyone. And yet, uh, I don't have the knowledge that Gina Flores has. I don't have that expertise. Uh, what am What am I looking for? What am I listening for? What should I be aware of? So it's an interesting point because I don't feel like the trigger can be avoided. And here's what I mean by that. Like life is always putting it in your face, whether certainly we don't want the content to further, further trigger. But if we ever want to learn about the Great Depression, we have to talk about food insecurity. Mm. That that really isn't avoidable. What's really more important is learning to process what has happened to us mm -hmm. and, and learning to like process that first within yourself as a self-awareness and then through seeking connection and, and through empathy. Um, You'd be amazed. High school students are a lot more empathetic than you would imagine them to be as long as you can put it in the right context. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them have felt, you know, like I said, this is unfair or I mean, not everybody has been separated physically, you know, in a different country from a loved one. But a lot of people have have been you know, especially in this pandemic world have been separated and isolated from people or, you know, they weren't allowed to go and be around these people they wanted to be around. That's isolation to them. Right. And so they can connect with that. And at the same time, that validates the experience that somebody else has just had. Mm -hmm. And so through being able to identify that within yourself and to connect with others, connecting with others, I mean, that gets into polyvagal theory, really. Um, which really tells us that our vagus nerve that runs from our brainstem all the way down through the major organs in our body is that connection is what brings us back to, to homeostasis, to balance, to being able to engage in our learning brain. One of the things that you mentioned is that we may not be able to prevent or avoid triggering because life happens. Life is in our face. Uh, you, 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 triggered for me in a very positive way. Uh, uh, an author that I've been reading the past couple of months, do you know the work of Dr. Edith Egger? No, I don't. So she is a survivor of Auschwitz. She is still alive. She is still teaching in her 90s. Uh, her classic book is called The Choice, The Choice. And as a survivor, as she finally made her way to this country, she was doing her best to block out that part of her life, to avoid uh, everything that would connect her to that part of her life. And through a variety of different life experiences, one of them, meeting uh, Dr. Viktor Frankl, 
who was also in Auschwitz at the same time. But of course, they didn't know each other then. They were very different ages. She was a young girl. He was already an adult uh, in Auschwitz. And she came to the awareness, as you are sharing with our listeners now, that you can't avoid it. Stuff's going to happen. You know, blank happens. Uh, and, and the triggers are going to happen. The key is, how, how do we support? How do we, how, do, how, how do we share our compassion? How do we share our empathy? How do we build those relationships that, that really, for me, is one of the keys to what you're speaking about tonight? Yeah, so resilience is really through relationships. Um, and that's really what we need to facilitate. We need to facilitate relationships. And so it's it's through having conversations and it's through um, offering and creating connections where they might not be apparent. I mean, I always say social studies is the study of the human experience. There are a, a lot of um, specific things like dates and times and all of that that are very different. However, Everybody at some point in time has felt joy, love, hurt, sadness, passion, all of these things. And so what I do is I teach an emotion every single day to show that. Wonderful. Somebody in, in 1960 and somebody in 1980 and somebody in 1990, they also felt all of those emotions. You feel all those emotions. The person sitting next to you feels all of those emotions. What has happened to you to create them? That has changed. That might be different. And if we share that, we can learn from each other. But at a certain base core, we all understand what it feels like to be sad, to feel isolated, to feel, and on the other spectrum, the other side of the spectrum, to feel happy, to feel elated, to feel determined, to feel passionate. I try to, to give a pretty even mix of the positive and the negatives sure, and, sure. and balance it out and build resilience, but um, the connection is really what does it. Excellent, excellent. So Mike, I'm curious, as a special educator, how is all of this resonating with you this evening? It it really strikes home for me um, in the sense that I have students from a, a diverse you know set of backgrounds uh, culturally. And I think that lacking an awareness of why students and families do the things that they do can be very harmful for, for an educator in the sense that when you don't have uh, an in, like if you don't have it like a schema for something or an understanding, then you start to fill those holes with assumptions, mm. which can be really dangerous. So I love this idea of building this shared experience with students in a way that lets them be vulnerable without them really feeling like um, they're in the spotlight or like they're giving something away about themselves because it helps you build an understanding without like, trying to like dig into like the, the maybe like the personal parts of their lives. It's I, I love it because it's an open invitation, but it's not confrontational. It's not, you know, putting really putting anyone in a, a sense of like a large discomfort. Um, anytime you're growing, you're going to be, you know, mm -hmm. somewhat like, you know, uncomfortable. But I, I just love this approach and how it lets you approach like just kids in a different way. Um, and I see people doing it, but without that intentionality and that conscious effort behind it. So it's really neat to hear that you're doing this and that it's coming from such a place of intentionality. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Gina. Before we start to wrap up tonight, uh, for one thing, and you both know that I'm an abstract random learner. So whatever is in my head comes out of my mouth. 
have I talked to you yet, Gina, about teaching for me? Yeah, we have talked about it. We haven't nailed down the dates, but I am I am definitely uh, interested in that. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I want to see you teaching a course that embeds the social and emotional with the historical. And I uh, obviously, I want to see you teaching a course that connects uh, serving our immigrant population as well. So you've got a couple of things I want you to do with me. Uh, before we end tonight, my friend, uh, imagine that uh, the summer's over and all of our educators that listen to this podcast are heading back to school. And many of them, like you, Gina, uh, are working with immigrant children. What do you want them to know? What is absolutely essential to keep in their mind and keep in their heart as the new school year begins? I would say relationships and connection first. If you can connect with a student, the content will come because if they trust you, they will follow you anywhere. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, my friend. Mike, thank you again for hosting us and producing for us. Um, just very, very grateful to all of our listeners. Keep listening. Thank you, everyone.